Connection Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, readers, and welcome back. Today, I'm going to share a conversation I had with Patty Callahan. Patty Callahan is the New York Times bestselling author of 15 novels. In 2018, she dazzled readers and critics alike with her first historical novel, Becoming Mrs. Lewis, about the life of Joy Davidman, wife of C.S. Lewis. And since then, Patty has released another historical novel called Surviving Savannah. So we discuss that novel on this podcast. And we also talk about her newest novel, which is coming out on October 19th. That novel is called Once Upon a Wardrobe, and it's also is a little bit about C.S. Lewis. Um, We talk more about that during our interview, of course, but I just want to add here that when I did the interview with Patty, I hadn't finished Once Upon a Wardrobe yet, but I have since finished it, and I just, I absolutely loved it. It is so immersive and just a beautiful novel, and I love C.S. Lewis, so obviously anything about him is going to be of interest to me, but I just thought that the novel was so well done. And you'll hear more about that during my interview with Patty. So enough of my gushing about her books. Let's get to the interview with Patty Callahan. Patty, I'm so glad you could join me on the show today. I am so happy to be here, Allison. Thank you for having me. Yes, we are going to talk about two of your books today. And I want to give attention to each of them. So first of all, your latest novel, Surviving Savannah, released in March. Can you tell me about this book? Yes, I can. I love Surviving Savannah. I devoted years of my life to it. It's probably the most Mm. research-intensive novel I've ever written, and yet it paid off in dividends for a really fascinating and lost to time story. Mm -hmm. So essentially it is about a long lost story of a shipwreck in 1838. It was a gorgeous luxury wooden steamship called the SS Pulaski that was carrying the elite of Savannah and Charleston North for the summer. And it exploded off the coast of North Carolina And I focus in on one family and what happened to them, a husband, a wife, six children, a niece, and a sister. And then I also have a modern day timeline because in real life and in my novel, they have found the remains of this ship. And I wanted to marry the past and the future through these artifacts at the bottom of the ocean. Yes. Um, I read this novel over the summer and I really enjoyed it. Um, what was your inspiration? Oh, I'm so glad you enjoyed it because I st- I still dream about it. I still think oh. about it. It's not a it's not a story. I mean, there rarely are, but it's not a story that leaves me easily, even even after the right. years of writing it and it already being in the world. And what right. inspired it was a it, it, it's such a great question because. It's such a fluid question. It's so hard to answer where did you get your inspiration because sometimes we don't know until the story's over. It's very fascinating to me. I call it origin stories. 
authors trying to explain the origins of certain novels. And even I can see that some of my inspiration didn't come from the places I thought it came from. But to answer mm-hmm. your question, the initial inspiration came from a pal of mine named Boo Harrell, who is a mariner in Bluffton, South Carolina. And he, over the years, continued giving me an article about this steamship. Patty, I know you love the area. I know you love lost stories. And I kept saying, I don't write about shipwrecks, which was such a stupid thing to say. But it wasn't ringing for me yet. And then finally one day he said, Patty, have you read that article I gave you yet? And I said, if you give it to me right now, I promise to read it tonight. And I did. And I thought, I got that thing, Allison, that like Mm. spidey sense, that tingle on my arms and at the back of my neck. And I decided to dive deeper into the story and see if there was something interesting to write about. And you write. And so you know that a vague thing is interesting in theory, but not in a novel. It has to be about someone. It has to be about someone's journey. And so I was digging in to write about this book when I hit on a headline that said, Endurance Exploration Has Discovered the Remains of the SS Pulaski, 30 miles off the coast of North Carolina, 100 feet deep. I know, chill bumps, right? Oh my goodness, yeah. I know. So it hit me in that moment alone in my office that while I was trying to bring up the stories of this lost to time tale, somebody else was on the other side trying to bring up the lost artifacts of this Mm -hmm. same tale. So we were working in tandem and didn't even know it. And I knew then that it was the story I wanted to tell next and that I would combine or marry or meld the past with the future. So that was my initial inspiration. But I do believe that my love of Savannah and my love of history and the area is what tipped me over the edge to write that book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, um, it was wonderful to read. And, and I just, I love your writing because you drop some really thought provoking lines into the narrative or into the dialogue. Oh, thank Um, you. Yeah. I, I wanted to mention a few of those from this book, um, from surviving Savannah. So one of them is on page 85, I'd always believed that one can't understand the past without visiting the places where events took place. So I'm just wondering, like, is that something you believe? And obviously, it seems like your love of Savannah played so much into this book. So it must have come from your own feelings. Absolutely. That, every once in a while, the the characters, a lot of times, not every once in a while, the characters are smarter than me and say great things. Right. right, You know that, right? Yep. And once in a while, also, they say things I don't agree with because they're Mm. not me, right? They're of me, but they're not me. And that that line, though, I totally believe. I believe that 
um, when we're trying to look to understand the past, to understand ourselves and the present time and the future and not repeat mistakes, that putting your feet on the ground is sometimes one of the best ways to do it. And this novel was, without a doubt, the most boots on the ground research I've ever had to do. Mm. And Alison, part of that came from the fact that there was no seminal book out there, no seminal work out there about this shipwreck. There were some chapters in other books, but there was no large, you know, seminal work on that night or what happened. Right. There yeah. wasn't even a full manifest of the mm, ship. Right. I had to put it together over a couple years and combining newspaper articles and journals and essays. And what I discovered as I was boots on the ground and walking around Savannah was that, yes, that's very important. You know, I, to imagine that ship pulling up to the wharf, to imagine, to walk the streets of Savannah that are still cobblestone in places and where the places my characters lived. But what really hit me during this writing of this is the unbelievable value of our museums. Mm. That that is where the visual storytelling still lives. That if we want to see what one of the experts I interviewed calls emancipating the past, those that's where we need to go. If we mm-hmm. want to look at the past from every different angle and not just through the mythology or the legends or what you might hear in a carriage ride or on a you know, a ghost tour. Those are all fun and interesting. But if we want the bigger story and the fuller story, for me, I found all of that in the museums of Savannah. Mm, Wonderful. So then there's another quote on page 163. Um, One of the characters says, tragedy, it can come from anywhere, anytime, and yet we pretend we're safe. It's absurd. And that I just feel like that speaks for itself. But I mean, I, a lot of times when I write something, I look back and I think, did I write that? <laughs> did that I know. But, <laughs> but um, do you remember what you were thinking when you wrote those words? Or do you, what do you think about those words now? Oh, those, those have come from, like when I wrote it, I, I don't think I noticed their impact until later. Right. And I remember reading it in revisions and being like, oh, yes, sir. Like, oh, yes, that's true, right? But sometimes yeah. when you're writing, things are coming from you, right? They're, they're of you, but you're, you're also on a roll, you know, writing the narrative yes. of the story. And like I talked about with you and I just talked about it a minute ago, sometimes you don't always know where the inspiration for something comes from. And right. not only is that just a universal truth, but it's happened to me Um Mm-hmm. It's been eight years and I'm totally fine, but I had breast cancer. And mm. it was one of those side swiping phone calls that I didn't see coming. Mm. And I remember thinking so many times during the few years of, of treatment and healing that, well, first of all, there's no way I could have seen it coming, but also how absurd to think it wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Right. Or something like it and or anything that that sideswipes us unexpectedly. And we have to not think about that. We have to live in our life 
not constantly thinking about what's going to hit me next or right. you know what, someday I'm going to die because we are. And so right. living life to the fullest sometimes takes a complete and utter denial of that truth. And yet it's also kind of absurd, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because we can't, it's impossible to live your life with that anxiety. And yet life wouldn't really be what it was if we didn't have the knowledge that tragedy is a possibility. Right, right. And to be, and, and to do the whole, why me? There's one thing to mourn right. and face it head on, but to think it's not, never us is in many ways absurd. Yes, <laughs> it is. Okay, well, in Surviving Savannah, you have three point of view characters. Now, tell me if I get this wrong, because I was going to double check and I forgot to look back. It's been a month oh, or so okay. since I finished. <laughs> but am I'm, I correct? I might have to look back too. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> there are three POV characters. Two of them are in the past. And yet the story mostly, mostly revolves around the present day character. I've never added up. It should be something I do. I think you're right. The, the modern day character has more pages. But to, to me, the two historical characters in many ways are driving mm. the narrative. Mm -hmm. Because they are the force behind the change of my modern day character. They right. are what she's looking for. They teach her something. They show her something. They reveal something. And meanwhile, they are literally in a life and death battle. So mm -hmm. the, the, the melding of those two felt um, difficult at first. And then as artifacts started rising from the sea, and as I started getting more and more of their story, I could see this theme between all of them start to emerge. And once that theme started to bubble up and emerge from the bottom of the story, the bottom of the ocean, whatever you want to call it, I, the three of them were integral integral to each other. Right. Uh, yeah, I can definitely see that. It's interesting though. It's as though you as an author, you're constructing this, um, doing this research, finding out, constructing this night that we know so little about. And um, your modern day character is doing the same kind of thing because she's putting together the museum exhibit about it. So it's I, almost like your, um, your journey kind of parallels her journey. At least that's how I think it would happen. It's exactly how it happened. And a lot of what Everly, my main character in the modern day story, a lot yes. of what she does in that story, I did because I did have to uncover what happened that night. I did have to find that journal or go to the Georgia Historical Society or right. interview the woman about how to identify silver at the bottom of the sea. Mm -hmm. Now, what happened to Everly in her life did not happen to me. The tragedy that has set her back and shut her off from right. life. But, you know, we've all had tragedies that could have shut us down and set us 
you know, shut us off from life. But a lot of her actual actions I did as the author. And so although she's very, very different than me, I loved giving her some of the things I did because I could describe them in full, what it was like to sit there and dig through boxes at the Georgia Historical Society, what it was like to visit visit the Ships of the Sea Museum, what it was Mm -hmm. like to learn and find the accounting, the real life accounting. Her real name was Rebecca Lamar in the novel. Her name is Augusta. But the real life accounting of a woman who went through a living hell, five days and five nights floating Mm -hmm. at sea with a two-year-old, a 14-year-old, and lots of other passengers. And I felt like I could imbue my actions to her. And yet she had her own responses to those actions that were a bit different than mine because mine was done in a purely research way. Hers was Mm -hmm. done on a more emotional, how is this affecting my life way? But Mm -hmm. all of them had their own narrative drive and all of them had the same theme, which is how do you survive the surviving? Right. Yes. Wonderful question. It's it's a rough one. I know, isn't it? Yeah. And so apropos for today, what we've had to move through. And and of course, when I started this novel, uh, this novel was essentially finished in March of 2020. It came Mm. out um, in March of 21, but it Mm -hmm. was essentially finished because as you know, novels are usually finished anywhere between 10 to 12 months, unless you're crashing a book. They're usually (laughs) done 10 to 12 months before a book comes out. And so when COVID hit and, and, and we all started talking about how to survive, I was like, I just wrote about this. I just wrote about this. Mm, yeah. So I thought a lot about it. I did. Yeah, I'm sure. So moving on to your next book, Once Upon a Wardrobe is releasing on October 19th. And I, um, I have just acquired the advanced reader's copy of that. So I am about, I don't know, 30% of the way through. Um, And I am just loving it. Um, Tell me about this book. I am so excited about Once Upon a Wardrobe. (laughs) And we were just discussing how um, Surviving Savannah was done when, Mm -hmm. when the pandemic hit. But I had only merely started Once Upon a Wardrobe when Mm. the pandemic hit. And I had thought it would take me a lot longer, but of course, when you can't leave your house. Um, So, and you have your college age son's home with you and your husband's doing his work from home. And uh, it was, this was the book that was my touchstone every single day. Well, it felt like the world was burning down. I could Mm -hmm. return to this enchanting world of George and Meg's and Narnia and Winter and England and Oxford and Worcester and live there for a bit. So I do feel that it is an incredibly immersive novel because Mm -hmm. of the way I immersed myself in it with these swaths of time that had been that were hard, but they were also a gift to me. My book mm-hmm. tour had been canceled. You know, we were all trying to figure out what to do, but this story. 
So the story is set in 1950 in Worcester, England and Oxford, England. There is a young boy named George Devonshire, and he lives in a small stone cottage in Worcester, England with his mom and his dad. And his sister Megs is a student at Oxford University at Somerset, which is the college for women at the time. She is a math and physics genius. But meanwhile, George is ill and he reads all the time because he's in bed. And in October of 1950, a brand new book burst onto the scene. It was called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And George is obsessed. He reads it all the time. He hides in his wardrobe, hoping for Mm. the back of his wardrobe to open up. (laughs) And when his sister comes home from school that weekend, he tells her about it. And then he tells her or asks her, I would like you to find the author who teaches at your university. And I want you to ask him, where did Narnia come from? It matters to me. And she said, that's ridiculous. I am a math and physics genius. And the world relies on logic and equation and the laws of nature. And that it's just a story. It's just imagination. And he says, nothing is just a story. And because she loves him, she hunts down C.S. Lewis in a kind of charming scene Mm -hmm. in the woods at the back of his house. And she asks him, I just need a real quick answer. Where did Narnia come from? And instead of answering her the way we might imagine or the way of logic or some of the books that are written that explain why C.S. Lewis wrote Narnia, he starts to tell Meg stories about his life, stories that are light and dark and some are scary, some are sad, some are joyful. Mm -hmm. And she brings those stories home to her brother. And Meg's and George adventure ensues. Yes. Um, it's so wonderful. And you're right, it is so immersive. I mean, oh, when I you. start, yeah, when I start reading it, I'm just, I'm there. And George even talks about that in the book, saying that, you know, he goes to where the story is, and Meg's doesn't really understand that. Um, or at least not yet. Yes. No, it's exactly <laughs> true. And I think I love that you noticed that, Allison, because one of the, um, not the problems, but one of the quandaries I had when I first started writing it was that I knew I wanted to show these seven events in Lewis's life that I could see their breadcrumbs in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So I really only address the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. I don't try to delve into some treatise on all of Narnia and its theories. But mm-hmm. I I could see these seven events in his life that were showing up in, in mm. this book that I love so much, that, that's such a part of the universal consciousness. Even if you've never read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when you say the wardrobe door or you say Aslan, or you say White mm-hmm. Witch, or you say Turkish Delight, people know what you're talking about. I've never met right. anyone who says, what? Wardrobe <laughs> door, Narnia, even if they've never read it, right? It's, yeah. it's become a part of our universal consciousness. And mm. I could see these breadcrumbs of his life in there. 
but I didn't want him talking to us or lecturing us. Well, I didn't mm-hmm. want, meaning Lewis, when I say he, I didn't want C.S. Lewis saying, oh, when I was 12 years old, my right. mother died. You know, I wanted us to see it. And I spent a long time figuring that out. And I decided that what I would do is separate us by three, meaning he tells Megs, mm-hmm. Megs writes it down. We don't see, we don't hear what he says. We we meet right. him and he we can tell he's telling a story. She writes it in her notebook. She reads it to George, but we see the story through George's eyes. Right. It's really ingenious the way you put that together. I was thinking about that, just taking us into C.S. Lewis's life, but not in a way that we think this is exactly what happened because we know it's from his imagination, the way that George sees the story. And I wanted it from a child's eyes. This certain, George has this certain wisdom, but he also has this certain innocence. And mm-hmm. so to to see Lewis lose his mother or go off to boarding school or the mm-hmm. things that we know as facts and are listed not only in Lewis's autobiography, but in every biography written about him, those are mm-hmm. facts. How did it feel? How did that show up in Narnia? How is it possible that it might have? And that's what I wanted to show. Yes. Well, you done a wonderful job. I can't wait to finish reading it. Oh, I can't wait to hear what you think when you finish it. <laughs> I have every confidence that I'll love it. Um, the rest of it. <laughs> um, I also, I becoming Mrs. Lewis has been on my TBR for far too long. And, but since you've written both of these novels, it's clear you must have a fascination with C.S. Lewis. So I'm just wondering where did this originate? Wow. That's, uh, who knows? <laughs> I think, um, you know, I grew up reading Lewis. I, my mm-hmm. dad was a pastor. So there were Lewis books all over the house. I read, <laughs> I read the screw tape letters way too young. Uh-huh. And of course fell through the wardrobe door of Narnia, but becoming Mrs. Lewis was in many ways more about my fascination with Joy Davidman, C.S. Lewis's mm. wife. Right. I became enthralled with her, to be honest. And at first, when I headed into it, I did it because his love story is very well known, right? Mm-hmm. He wrote a book about it called A Grief Observed. There's a movie mm-hmm. called Shadowlands. There's yes. his, his love story is well told, but it's never told from her point of view. And how right. did this American woman just show up in England and marry C.S. What? She had two children. She was married. She was And then I realized as I started my research, I thought I was just writing a love story. But then I found this woman who changed my life. And she was a Mm. poet and a novelist and a mother and a screenwriter and born and bred in New York from a a Jewish family. She was an atheist. It it just Mm. none of it made sense that she would end up in Oxford, England, married to C.S. Lewis. And so the more I learned about her, the more that book became about her transformational journey. And yes, we meet Lewis. Of course we do. And we learn a lot about him, but it is told entirely from her point of view in the first Mm. person from behind her eyes, from what I like to say was the seat of her heart. Um, And, but that is where Alison, where I, 
doing the research for that book is where I started to see those breadcrumbs that I see mm-hmm. in Narnia. And he right. met Joy after the, well, actually the month, the year that Narnia came out. So he met, they started a pen friendship in January of 1950. And the first Narnia came out on October 17th, 1950. So they were writing letters to each other, but Narnia had been written already, or at least the first one. Um, Mm -hmm. The horse and his boy is dedicated to her sons. And so some of it was happening when they were together, but Narnia, all of Once Upon a Wardrobe happens before he ever meets her. Okay. Wow. Um. So, Patty, have you always loved to write? How did you get started? Oh, I'm going to ask you. I I hate to flip it, but I'm going to. Did you? (laughs) Because I want to know, too. Did you always love to write? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, Yes, I have always loved to write. I I started writing in a journal when I was eight, and I started writing stories probably around that time, too. See, that's my theory that if you love to write, it was, you were either love to read or write, or it mm-hmm. was in many ways, part of you from a very young age. And yes, I love to write. I think I, I wrote my first biography when I was 12. It was called my life. Mm. It's very boring. And <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote something similar. <laughs> yeah, I think we all did. And I, I wrote, you know, I wrote silly stories and poems and drew the covers But to be honest, it wasn't my first career because I didn't, I don't know what I didn't think, but I didn't think that that was a thing you did in the world. I Mm -hmm. didn't think that writing was a career or for me, it was just fun. And I was a huge reader. So the reading, you know, was the alive thing to me. So my first book, I was a nurse first. That was my first career. I was a pediatric nurse. And my first book came out right after my 40th birthday. Mm, Wow. I know. Crazy, right? It's never too late. I think it's, um, who says it? George, George Eliot. It's never too late to become who you want to become. I mangled that, but (laughs) that's the quote. I will will look it up and get the right quote, but that, that is always it's so true so true you know especially if it's something so deep down that Mm -hmm. the desire has been there it's been an impulse I I guess an impulse is better you know we're all creative as children and sometimes it gets beat out of us or just worn down if not beat and Mm -hmm. there's certain impulses I think rise naturally from children whether it's painting drawing singing dancing instruments and for us sounds like me and you both. It was writing. Yes, totally. Um, So this is a question I ask all my guests. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Mm, You know, we talked about it in that quote in Surviving Savannah about putting our feet where history was and, and I mentioned it earlier, but I love the phrase that is not mine. It is from by a woman named Shannon Browning Mullists, who I met at a museum, that I love the idea of emancipating the past. 
mm-hmm. think it's important to tell these stories because it brings the past out of mythology and legend and lets us see it from different points of view. So you might have heard about the Pulaski. You probably didn't. Most people hadn't. But if you had, it was probably told from a man's point of view, or it was about treasure hunting, or it was about the captain, or it was about how the boiler blew up. It it, it wasn't told from the enslaved or the women's point of view. But if we're going to get the full story and emancipate these mythologies from the past, I think that that's what story does is it lets us see it from other points of views so we can bring the past forward and see it in a fuller picture. And number one, understand who we are better, but also not repeat our mistakes. Yes, so true. That is my theory and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. Thank you. So this has been a wonderful conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? I, my website has everything from the podcast. I've done, I did a podcast for Surviving Savannah. I did a podcast for Becoming Mrs. Lewis. I have book club kits and bios and Q and A's, but I'm very active on Facebook and Instagram. So you can find me there. I'm not very active on Twitter, but I will answer someone if they send me something. I just, I kind of, I just, I don't know. I think we all have our the places we're yeah. most comfortable interacting, right? Twitter's not Twitter's not my favorite either. Yeah, so I, I, I forget to go over there all the time. Mm-hmm. Me too. Um, but yes, I'm easy to find on the social media channels. So when you say you have a podcast for each of those books, um, is that part of your bigger podcast with the other authors, or is it a specific just? Release? No. So that is the other place you can find find me. It's Friends and Fiction, which has been this astounding thing that happened during the pandemic. Right. Where me and four other authors, all, you know, best-selling New York Times authors. Yeah, we, we had um, Kristen Harmel oh, on the show as well. And she's on, on Friends and Fiction also. Yes. And so we have a Facebook page and a web show that's live every Wednesday night. And then we also have a podcast and the podcast has the shows. So you can, if you don't watch the shows on YouTube or Facebook, you can listen to them. Mm. And then we Mm. also have every Friday, we have partnered with Ron Block of Cuyahoga Library. And we have a podcast called Writer's Block, but it is on Mm. the same Friends and Fiction channel where we interview people from the publishing industry, authors, booksellers, blogger, just anything to do with books is is on our Ron Block, on our Writer's Block Friday podcast. So all of that you can find at the Friends and Fiction website. But for the book, Becoming Mrs. Lewis, and for the book, Surviving Savannah, I picked the top six or seven experts that I interviewed for the book and oh. how many things had had to end up on the cutting room floor. Allison, you know how mm, that is. Yes. And so I, if you want more, if you're done reading Becoming Mrs. Lewis or reading Surviving Savannah and you want more about the background and the research and the stories, I have um, seven podcasts for each of uh, a series oh of seven God. episodes for each book. That is a wonderful idea. That is amazing. Thank you. Um, are you doing the same thing for Once Upon a Wardrobe? Not right now. And I, I think 
The reason I'm not doing it yet, although I have thought about it, is because we're doing so much with friends and fiction, but also because so many of the experts that I interviewed for that are in the Becoming Mrs. Lewis podcast, meaning experts on Lewis's life, his son-in-law, his, uh, not son-in-law, his um, stepson, who I am friends Mm -hmm. with, those people I have, are, are, are in that podcast, but- I might. We'll see. It's not out till October. I have a little time to think about it. Right, you do. Yes. (laughs) But that's a wonderful idea. I will definitely have to listen to those. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you so much for being with us today, Patty. Oh, Allison, it has been an absolute pleasure. That flew by. I know. It's 35 minutes. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, I love talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed hearing from Patty Callahan as much as I enjoyed talking with her. I really do love the books of hers that I've read. Um, So I hope you will check them out. You can get to them from my show notes, which you, if you can't find them in your podcatcher app, then look for them online at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. And always visit the show notes, please, because there are links to not only the books, like this time it'll be Surviving Savannah and Once Upon a Wardrobe, and then links to um, Patty's web series that she mentioned, Friends and Fiction. And I also linked to her um, podcast series about Surviving Savannah. And I always link to the Facebook podcast group, which you can just find by searching Historical Fiction Unpacked Podcast Group. But definitely join that group if you're on Facebook and you are enjoying Historical Fiction Unpacked. In addition, if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and or follow. They call it different things. I think Apple Podcasts now calls it following a podcast, but most of them call it subscribing. And also, after you've subscribed, please leave a star rating and review because that really helps other people find the podcast. If you have a chance to share the podcast with a friend, you know, word of mouth is probably the biggest way for our listenership to grow. And I would love for more people to find the podcast, more readers of historical fiction. It's a great way to find books. And if you listened this long, you already know that the the interviews are fantastic. Um, and it's just so much fun to hear from the authors of the books that we love. I'm going to leave you today with the quote that Patty Callahan mentioned that is attributed to George Eliot, although I guess there's not a lot of evidence that she actually wrote this. Maybe she just said it to someone. I don't know. The actual quote is, it's never too late to be what you might have been. So my friends, take life by the horns and keep reading historical fiction. I will talk to you again next week. <laughs>